Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Podcast. And uh, today we have a, we have a case uh, that Jason and I saw a couple weeks ago. Um, and Jason's here to keep me honest and fill in any details about what he saw. And an outside facility was calling, telling me I had a 52-year-old uh, male uh, Hispanic uh, with a fever to 38 degrees and confusion for several days. Uh, this guy's Spanish-speaking. The outside doc really can't obtain a clear history. Uh, he's not sure, but the family's here, and he's getting some history from the family. They did a chest X-ray. They did a CT of the head. They did a CT of the abdomen and pelvis, and those were all reportedly negative. Uh, you know, this guy's from Mexico. He's, uh, he's not from around here. He's got some sort of weird tropical thing. That's pretty much what they thought. So you got, you got to take him over there at the U, because, you know, I don't know, I don't know what we'd do. So, before he arrives, and Mike, you saw this case, I think. You, you'll remember this. You'll, it'll, it'll be all too familiar in a minute. What kind of things are you thinking about before we even start? Right. Okay. So, yes. Yes, he, he's from Mexico. Yes, there might be a tropical infection and stuff, but you know what? You know, common, thers, common things occur commonly, and the most common reason to have, like, a bad fever and a bad outcome and bad mental status is actually pneumonia. Just good old simple strep pneumo. Um, but, you know, obviously we're thinking about mental things, so we're thinking to think about CNS, CNS infections, and I think meningitis and encephalitis should be top of the list. What else? How often have you seen UTI cause altered mental status? Pretty much every day. Every time you get a patient from a nursing home, that's what they have. Okay, so we're saying infection, but what if it's not infection? What if it's tox? What kind of, a, what kind of in, uh, ingestions or, 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 or uh, poisonings could cause Somewhat, somewhat similar symptoms. So anticholinergic, okay, sympathomatic. We'll say, we'll just say adrenergic. What's an example of a sympathomatic or adrenergic ingestion? Cocaine. Cocaine, methamphetamines. Hey, we're here in Iowa, so it's meth. Maybe a whole lot of cold medicine. Cold medicines also. What about environmental stuff? Plants, anything else? What about fertilizer? Yeah, what about, what about uh, um, insecticides? Right, so insecticides are actually cholinergic. Does this fit with insecticides? Okay, not so much. Okay, thyroid, good, good one. No, that's a good, I like that. Thyroid, thyroid storm. Very good, I was waiting for that one. Aspirin overdose. There you go, alcohol withdrawal. Wow, see, we're thinking ingestions. What about withdrawal from, from medications? And of course, benzos. Benzo withdrawal, fantastic. So now, even before the patient's arrived, before you even see the patient, you've got this whole list of things um, that, that could be going on. Of course, as you, I'm sure you would never guess this, but you know what, when the patient showed up, turns out the presentation is a little bit different than actually they advertised it over the phone. That's never happened before, I know. He's not febrile, actually. Uh, temperature is 36.3. And we continued to monitor that. It wasn't that he had just gotten Motrin. We continued to monitor that in the ER and never actually spiked the fever again. So we don't know, quite know why they measured a fever at 38 outside facility. His uh, rest of his vital signs are fairly normal. He looks disheveled. Um, he's sitting on the edge of the bed. He's awake and alert. He looks at you when you walk in the room. And he'll, he'll look at you and he'll try to, he'll try to respond. And if you he, if he answer him yes, no questions, he can pretty much help you, sort of. Anything more complicated than that, and he's gone and you just can't answer and he mumbles and he goes into gibberish 
And uh, yes, he's, 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 he's uh, you know, speaking Spanish, but even uh, myself or some of the other uh, Spanish-speaking physicians there, um, Jason, you agree that even his Spanish just deteriorated in gibberish within, within a, few, a few words. So most of the history we got from the family. Jason, did you want anything else about the, about the initial presentation? Your impression? Mike, your impression when you walk in the room? He was alert, and he knew kind of um, that he was in a hospital, but he didn't know what time it was, and, and he couldn't, you know, he was really clumsy. Uh, turns out, this has been going on for months. In fact, with a, later on with a really detailed history, we found out really he's been having some sort of mental symptoms, symptoms for about three years. So our initial differential is probably a little bit off at this point. About four months ago, uh, he started having difficulty with full sentences. So that was something that the family noticed. We, that, was our, that was one of the first things I noticed, and it's something that the family noticed as well. He is sleeping more. He's more irritable, uh, especially with noise. Um, he's forgetting names of his family members. In fact, this week, and what really prompted the wife to bring him in was, he forgot the name of his wife, and that was, that was her clue. I was like, all right, there's something wrong now. That, that, that and then we know there's a problem. Uh, really, there's been a more acute decline over the last four weeks. Um, at this point, he's disoriented time. Um, he needs constant direction. Like if, they actually, if he drives in the car with him, they pretty much have to tell him block by block what to do. Uh, he needs help with the ADLs. They hand him a sock. He asks for a sock. They hand him a sock. He takes the socks and wipes his, wipes his nose. He doesn't put it on his feet. He's had a 50-pound weight loss over the last year. He's repeatedly dropping his keys. What, what, repeatedly dropping the keys. What, what, why, why do we care about that? Okay. So cerebellar, fine motor movements. Um, he's recently developed urinary incontinence. Do we care? Oh, yeah. Okay, that's, that's helpful. He uh, denies weakness. Uh, and numbness. He specifically denies headache despite repeated um, questionings. Uh, he doesn't have any fevers, chills, or night sweats. So he has this weight loss, but no fevers, chills, and night sweats. That, I think, is pretty helpful as well. Any thoughts at this point? The, we, 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 we did have the copy of the CT. The CT of the head, Adam and pelvis were confirmed to be normal. Ah, good question. So travel history, important question. Have we talked about this? We'll get to that in a second. Any other history? Helmets? Okay, good. Social history, yeah. Yes, he is. Yes, he was working. And occupational history is important as well. Occupational exposures. Good. You nailed, nailed all of them on the next slide. Okay. So travel history. He was born in Mexico. So we talk about. So so I, I talk about tropical diseases a lot. One of the key elements for for talking about tropical tropical infections is to ask a travel history. Where have you been? The time period away from those those tropical locations. What did you do there? So what kind of exposure did you have? So we're talking, we're talking to returning travelers. Well, simple travel history reveals that he, was, he moved to the United States 20 years ago in Long, Beach, in Long Beach, California. He's pretty much, yes, he was born in Mexico. He's pretty much lived in the United States for the last 20 years. That makes him the same exposure as the rest of us. So there's nothing funky about his exposures. He moved to Postville, Iowa only about three years ago. Um, his last visit to Mexico was greater than five years ago. So it's really not, uh, so he really doesn't have any significant Travel exposures. And why am I presenting this case? Good question. All right. Um, occupational history. He works as, uh, as a uh, custodian in a meatpacking plant. It was noted that uh, he's exposed to beef, chicken, and lamb, but no pork. Why do we care? He's Jewish. Very good. Thank you, Dr. Graber. Yes. Trick, uh, trichinosis. Trick something? Okay. Pork tapeworm. Okay. 
And the poor tapeworm results in two different infections, trichinosis and, and, well, and cystrocytosis, depending on where it is. Maybe if it's in the brain, it's neurocystocytosis. What's the difference between trichinosis and cystrocytosis? Trichinella. I'm sorry, you're right. Trichinella is a type of organism. I mean, sorry, the, the poor tapeworm, which is a cestode, um, which is tinea. Sorry, excuse me. So, so it results in two infections, tinea, or tinea psyllium, or, um, or cystrocytosis. What's the difference between the two infections? Yeah, so it forms little cysts. Why? Okay, you are when you get cystrocytosis, you are being the pig. You have then ingested the fecal. Yeah, cool, huh? The 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 fecal form of the uh, of the parasite, and the parasite is going into your muscles and into your brain in the hopes that a predator is going to eat you. So you the the the, the pork. Tapeworm gets confused and thinks you're the pig, and it goes into your muscles. That's, and that's, that, that's something we see a lot. We see more rarely, because it rarely causes symptoms, is if it accomplishes what it's supposed to do, and you eat the pig. You eat the muscle of the pig that's infected with the pork tapeworm. Then you get a tapeworm in your intestines. That usually does not result in disease. We usually don't talk about that disease. We usually don't treat that disease. Why? Because it doesn't cause symptoms, for the most part, unless you have a really massive infection. Because the, the poor tapeworm is very happy to live in your intestines and not cause you uh, harm, because uh, you're feeding it and it's getting fat and happy and it loves it. Um, it's not going to cause much problems. But we're not supposed to be the sort of primary target of the, of the, of the cysts. Okay, so uh, occupational history. And then finally, family history revealed that he's had similar symptoms were, uh, developed in his mother and his sister with onset around the 40s and their death at age 55. But I'm sure that is not insignificant whatsoever. Yes. Maybe we should go on to physical exam. Sounds good. Okay. Um, this is the physical exam that, that, I, that, I had, that I read recorded actually off the discharge summary. So um, Jason, Mike, have you guys had any other comments about the physical you can think of? I was not impressed with his career from Mormon movements. That was, that was one thing I looked for as well. Okay. I think uh, basically his, his, uh, his vital signs are more or less normal. Um, he was not oriented. Obviously, his mental status was significant. I think most significant about his speech was, yeah, maybe there's some dysarthria, uh, and then you didn't have a lot of amplitude in his voice. And we think of, when we think of, of decreased motor movement and, and monotony and, um, you know, and, and decreased facial expression, you think of what disease? Parkinson's. Good. Uh, but his speech pattern was very tangential. And, and that's where we talk about where he just couldn't answer questions if he had to ask them more than a couple, couple sentences. Um, cranial nerves are basically intact, including his eye movements. His strength of his arm, his strength, arm and leg strength was perfectly fine. He was perfectly strong. In fact, he resisted us when we, when we tried to examine him. The tone was fine. He had good tone in his muscles. He didn't have that cogwheel rigidity, which we see in, which is Parkinson's. Very good. So he didn't, ha didn't have that. The neurologists thought he had some possible career form movements when his arms were fully extended. Like I said, I, I was not impressed with, this, with, with, with the presence of Korea. Very brisk reflexes, questioned whether or not there actually was clonus. But they were bilateral, they were symmetrical. Basically, the exam was symmetrical. And our differential is completely different, so let's do it again. Okay, so you threw out Huntington's first. What, what, uh, what makes you think about Huntington's? So you like, that, you, you like that family history. So that's a pretty strong family history. Okay, if it's not Huntington's, what would it be? Good. Wilson's. Who said Wilson's? You are genius. Why Wilson's? What is, what is Wilson's? What's the enzyme that you're lacking? 
ceruloplasm. So it's a, it's a congenital absence of ceruloplasm, which means you can't process the copper, which builds up in your iris in the, in the presence of Clara Fleischer rings, and in your, um, and a uh, couple of places. What's that? No, that's, uh, that's hemochromatosis. Uh, and then your, uh, among other places, your basal ganglia resulting in a, in a chorea, uh, chorea form uh, dementia. Why not just Alzheimer's? Uh, doesn't matter. Alzheimer's. A little early for Alzheimer's? He's 52. Okay. Right. So, yes, he is a little early for Alzheimer's, but there's a family history. So maybe he has had one of those really bad sort of early onset Alzheimer's situations. And that would maybe explain why we weren't really that impressed with his motor exams. Huntington's disease is the first thing he thought of. Um, and, and we asked specifically about Cory for moments. Um, he didn't, I was not, yes, neurologists thought maybe there was some chorea, but let's say he didn't have much chorea. I mean, does that exclude Huntington's? Apparently not, not really, apparently. Apparently it's, um, uh, it's uh, uh, initially, uh, it can present with either movement disorder or dementia, and then eventually you develop both. So you, you, you can present with either one of them, not necessarily, you don't have to have chorea on presentation, or you don't have to have dementia on presentation. New and picks? Yeah. So what's new and pick disease? It's that thing that, that we, you know, causes the thing with the brain and makes people crazy, yeah. Okay, it's basically a form of, of chronic dementia, specifically targets the frontal lobes, and so when you see a CT scan or, or specifically an MRI, a lot of times you'll see um, absence of, the, of those areas. It's another form of chronic dementia. Anything else? How about thiamine deficiency? Sure. At least that's something reversible. We gave him four really bad diagnoses. That's at least something we can actually treat. Okay, heavy metal, good. So he works in a, he works in a meat processing plant. What, what, if he, what if he eats some of that, that cow brain that they have? Okay, so variant Kretzfeld-Jakob disease, otherwise known as mad cow. Why is it variant Kretzfeld-Jakob? What's Kretzfeld-Jakob? And can you spell it? No. Okay, right. Okay. You hear it's a prion disease. You've heard about associated with, with cannibals in New Guinea. Um, and results it's a results in a chronic spongy form encephalopathy, which is unremitting, chronic, and deadly, and very unpleasant. But what's different and there are sporadic forms of Kretzel Jakob as well. That's the classic Kretzel Jakob. But variant Kretzel-Jakob is, is a little different. Why, what's different about it? Why do we call it, why do we bother to label it variant? What's a classic history of a Kretzel-Jakob, sporadic case of Kretzel-Jakob? It's rare, happens in older people. And variant disease, there, it, 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 that name came out because in England, in Britain in the 80s, uh, late 80s, all of a sudden noticed all these very young people in their 20s who were developing it. That's then what led to the investigation, led to, led to the conclusion that possibly mad cow can then affect humans, and that's what we call variant CJD. So there's actually, there's epidemiologic differences in the disease, and it turns out there's actually, there's actually histopathologic differences as well. So let's, you know what, you, you know what? As far as I'm concerned, you can always throw HIV, TB, and thyroid up on any differential. So let's go, let's go put up thyroid. Okay. And hypothyroidism, why, 
Why, why couldn't this be hyperthyroidism? Potentially early myxedema, right? When we see coma. Well, that's a pretty good list. Let's we can move on. Okay, uh, lab results. Basically, uh, we want to know about anemia. Uh, he's not anemic. CBC is fairly normal. Um, his chemistries are fairly normal. He doesn't have any really bad uh, renal disease. UA is fine. LFTs are fine. Dr. Hansen performed an excellent lumbar puncture. Did we get, I forget, did we get an opening pressure on that one? We didn't, yeah. Um, but basically, the, it was a traumatic tab initially bloody, but cleared. I think the repeat, uh, repeat tube is clear. So basically, we have normal LP. Uh, they said it was, uh, oh, their diff is normal. No big eosinophils, no, nothing funky. I don't have the pictures of the MRI, but the MRI basically showed uh, global bronchial loss, just kind of all over smaller brain. Um, if we were thinking about Newman-Pick disease, we might have wanted to see, you know, focusing on the, on the temporal lobes. If we were looking at um, one of the, of the deposition diseases, we would have looked specifically at the basal ganglia. They actually commented on the basal ganglia and reported the basal ganglia appeared normal, and there was no sign of uh, ischemia as well. So, so multi-infarct dementia would be another concern, and, and there really wasn't any sign of that on his MRI. So what do you guys, uh, what do you guys think? What's your guess? All right. The conclusion of the discharging uh, um, neurologists was, in fact, Huntington's disease. And they based it mostly on the uh, family history. They did do a uh, ceruloplasm level, um, and, and that was normal. So they ruled out Wilson's disease. Uh, and they felt that the, with the MRI being normal, there weren't many other things it could be. So they did send away for his genetic test. So let's talk a little bit about Huntington's disease. Huntington's disease uh, was named for the physician who first described it, um, George Huntington. He's an Ohio, he was an Ohio uh, physician, family physician in the 1870s, and he published this paper in 1872 describing Korea. It was on Korea. And he described Korea, and he described uh, some, a, a case series of some patients with familiar, familiar Korea. And he, as long as he, he, far as he was concerned, he just thought this was kind of a medical curiosity. And uh, he actually was not an academic guy. He just published this one paper soon after med school and then pretty much was then went back to his, his practice and that was it. Um, as it turns out, uh, of course, we know much more about this disease now. It's classified as, it's basically a hereditary disorder that um, results in a gradual onset and subsequent progression of chorea and dementia. Either movement disorder or the amount of status changes may be that presenting symptoms. The dementia is described as irritability or moodiness in antisocial behavior initially, and there were some definitely some signs of that in this guy. That sounds like sounds like our guy. And late, um, there's obvious dementia. I think this guy's progressed to the point where he really has some dementia. In terms of the chorea, again, initially it's fidgetiness and restlessness, and that's how it presents, and that describes exactly what he looked like. That's, that's a class example. Him getting tangled up in the, in the EKG leads, uh, he was always fidgeting. And we, you know, getting him to sit still for the, for the LP was an impressive feat. Eventually, you're going to get you know, grossly abnormal choreiform movements. Once you develop symptoms, you basically got 10 or 20 years, and then that's it. I think everybody can tell me the inheritance. Let's hear it all together. One, two, three. Osodominant. Very good. It's osodominant with complete penetrance. And the only reason that's significant is because this actually follows true Mendelian inheritance. None of that funky, like, co-inheritance, and uh, it's not, you know, it's one that, you know, if you actually trace the family history, you will actually can do the little tables just like you learned back in, in medical school. 
uh, and it follows that true, it's same as these, you know, sweet pea, whatever, um, you know, sweet pea color and height of the plant kind of thing. So um, if you look at a, a, uh, a family history, you can, you can show halves. If, a, if a someone with the disease mates with someone who is normal, who is someone who doesn't have the disease, what's the chances of their kid having the disease? So if the person who has the disease is heterozygous, assuming they're heterozygous, because it's a pretty rare, it's, pretty, it's a pretty rare allele, pretty rare allele. Someone's probably not going to be, gonna be you, know, he, you know, homozygous for this. So the person with the disease is heterozygous. The person who's, who's normal has to be homozygous normal. What's the chances of, of the kid having the disease? 50-50. It's coin flip. Anybody get the New York Times? Raise your hand. I'm not the only one in the room. Oh, that is so weak. All right. Oh, edit that out of the podcast. Okay. Anyway, um, the uh, New York Times uh, Sunday edition just this week, good coincidence, good, good timing, this cover article uh, was on a lady who uh, had the genetic test uh, for uh, Huntington's disease and turned out to be positive. Her name was uh, Catherine Moser. And her uncle or cousin or something like that has a, had the disease, so they wanted to test, you know, she wanted her family tested, and, and she was one person that, that got tested. And she, she found out, and, and she's, she's positive. So here's this young, healthy, very active 24-year-old woman, um, and now she knows that she's, in 20 years, she's going to be debilita debilitated. So it brings up the ob obvious question is, would you really want to know? Would you want to know? If you had in your family, would you, would you get tested? Why are, why, you get tested. Why? Why would you get tested? Mm -hmm. Makes a big difference in what's going to happen to you. And so, just for simple planning. So, for, for life planning, you'd want to know. Thomas, you wouldn't want to get tested? You wouldn't want to know? Why would you want to know? Okay. Well, they're going to find out. <laughs> yeah. Now, genetics is not one area where, where we, we tend to, where emergency physicians tend to a lot of, spend a lot of experience. So, I know this is something that doesn't come up on a nightly basis in the ER. However, I did want to talk about this thing, this one segment, and give you the details of this, of this genetics because I don't know if it's going to come up on a test or anything, but it, it, I think it's very interesting. I think it's good to know, and I think that it will become more common in the future. And it is really our classic example of where a genetic test gives you your life story. And it's something that really is one of the most well studied of all these of all these uh, genetic diseases. The gene for Huntington's, yeah, and family planning would be an issue for for whether or not you want to get tested or not. And as Chris, as Mike says, is, is this this gene as the more the further you go on, the gene gets more and more sort of expanded and and, and the codons becomes longer. So for planning for, for living wills and planning for well, I think financial planning is an important concern. And as Dean has used to just I mean, yeah, your insurance is going to take a it's going to be pretty significant. Talk about pre-existing condition. So, and I think that's something that, that you know, this is something that society is going to have to face more and more now when we learn more and more about genetic diseases. So, the gene is carried on chromosome four. The gene that that codes for Huntington's disease is an abnormally long repeat of the sequence CAG. Okay, it is normal to have a few of these codons, these triplet codons, repeat on that chromosome. It is normal to have 15, 20, up to 26 repeats, and, and people are different. Different people have different numbers of repeats on that chromosome, but it's normal to have up to 26 repeats of that chromosome. That's the normal population. 
for everyone who's developed Huntington's disease, they've had greater than 40. In fact, the higher the number, and this is something that Michael alluded to, the higher the number, the faster you get disease, and uh, the more severe, the, or more rapid the onset anyway, the more, well, more severe the disease. The disease is always severe, it's, it's always deadly, but the, the, the faster the course is. So not only does the, the test tell you whether or not you're gonna get it, it can actually give you an idea of how, what the course is gonna be like. So that's really predictive. And the other thing that Mike said is true is, is that if someone, you know, as you go through generations, if you have a couple of people in the family that have Huntington's, um, for, you know, future generations tend to have longer and longer repeats. So someone may be just below the threshold, say at 35. 38, yeah. yeah. They, 38, you know, 35 to 38 repeats, you're not going to get disease, but your children might. So in terms of if it's in your family, that would be significant for family planning. The lady who's in our article in the New York Times, Catherine Mosier, it turns out she had 45 repeats, which was actually more than even her, her grandfather. So she was she is likely to get disease, and she's likely to pray this very case. What do you guys uh, think uh, our uh, patient presented today had? Okay, 52, same as age. Would you be surprised to learn that it's only 18? <gasps> All right, everybody. <gasps> okay. Moment of awe, shock and awe. What does that mean? means he doesn't have Huntington's disease, so he's not going to get Huntington's disease. That is not what killed him, probably not what killed his, his family members. So very significant. So he was discharged with a diagnosis of probable Huntington's disease. This genetic test came back afterwards. If someone had really significant hemibolismus, horrible chorea, I think the family would know. As you guys may be familiar with, when people um, develop this over a long period of time, um, people tend to have it tend to have, have a habit to work in the chorea into um, sort of ticks or into uh, facial movements, basically to cover it up. And so someone who's always, you know, kind of combing his hair, that may actually just not, not be just a personality issue. It may not, may not just be lice. It actually also may be just actually chorea. So maybe they were able to cover it up. More maybe they just didn't have Huntington's, which is apparently the case. So my guess is that he had early onset uh, Alzheimer's. Um, in the absence of, of Wilson's disease, so um, that's probably what his family has. So he probably has some, his family has some sort of advanced Alzheimer's inherited disorder. But while we're on topic of, uh, <laughs> of, of Huntington's disease, let's talk about some, some people who have had it. Who's this? Woody Guthrie. Who's Woody Guthrie? Harlow's dad. Good. <laughs> Thanks. That was helpful. Guthrie performing. One of them, lost in the archives for 40 years, has only just come to light. But the rustlers broke on us in the dead hours of night. She rose from her blanket, a battle to fight. She rose from her blanket. Okay. So, what was going on with his feet? He was just keeping time. That was nothing. <laughs> Sorry. I couldn't help it myself. 
Uh, no, so we were just talking about how integrating um, those career form movements into sort of your, uh, into your normal movements. No, he wasn't actually doing that. Um, however, there were some reports of him very, very commonly stumbling on stage, and he kind of worked stumbling into his, his act, and he kind of acting like kind of a, kind of a bum. And uh, there were some suggestions that maybe that was actually him um, disguising his career form movements. Now, it's certainly um, true that his family history, uh, his family had a pretty strong uh, his, history of uh, mental disorders. For some reason, <laughs> there were a bunch of pyromaniacs in his family. Uh, his family, ho family home burned down uh, before his birth. Okay, well, no big deal. Obviously, you know, homes, there weren't a lot of smoke detectors and, and uh, fire retardant materials then, so that was uh, certainly common. That was around 1909 or so. Um, her si his sister set herself on fire, so, like when he was mad at her mom. Um, her mom set fire to Woody's dad, just snuck up to him while he was sitting on the couch and poured kerosene and let him in fire. Um, Woody's died, and this, we don't know if this was tied to, to mental illness or, or to Woody at all, and no one was ever um, arrested for arson or blamed for the death, but Woody's daughter died in a house fire as well, so there's a lot of uh, connections there. In describing his mom, um, he says, Woody says, she would be all right for a while and treat us, could, treat us kids as good as any mother, and all at once it would start, something bad and awful, something would start coming over her and would come by slow degrees. Her face would twitch and her lips would snarl and her teeth would show. Spit would run out of her mouth and she would start out in a low grumbling voice and gradually get it to talking as loud as her throat could stand it. And her arms would drop at her sides and then curve her back and swing in all kinds of curves. Okay. Um, her stomach would drop in her hardball and she would turn into a horrible looking hunch and then turn into another person and looked at me standing before Rory and me. That woman, Nora, died at, at age, age 41. What he was always regarded as kind of being eccentric, I think is one, one word describing it. And it was really noted that probably about age 20 or so, his behavior was erratic or, or unusual. And he uh, remarked to one of his uh, colleagues, uh, I, I don't know, something comes over me, I just feel queer sometimes. He was always moving around, he was restless, he uprooted his family multiple times, moved from Oklahoma to California to New York and back. Um, he left his wife, and he had a family, he got married, he had a couple kids, and then he up and left his wife. And then he settled down with that next, next person, and had a, got married again, had some kids, and then in the middle of that, left that. So he left his, he had a wife and kids, and he left them twice. Um, again, I mentioned the stumbling on stage, he certainly had periods of being angry, in fact he was even jailed in 1949 um, for obscene letter writing. Now at the time, this was all attributed um, to alcohol abuse. In fact, when he was admitted to uh, Kings County Hospital uh, f for uh, an end, uh, for examination, the examining physician concluded, this is one of those cases which stubbornly defies classification. In it, it has elements of schizophrenia, psychopathy, and a, psych a psychoneurotic anxiety state, not to mention the mental and personality changes occurring in Huntington's Korea at this patient's age. As such, the examiner chooses to defer diagnosis until such a time as further observation makes the picture clear. So they really just didn't, they weren't, they weren't sure at the time. This is a sample of his handwriting. This is from a letter, a handwriting letter he wrote to a friend in 1940. The language is all very typical Woody, which is not exactly, I wouldn't say is, is prose. Um, he's a, um, he's got kind of a coarse manner of speech, and that was, I think, played out in his, in his uh, lyrics of his folk songs, and I think as you saw in that, in that video clip. But, but compare that to about 10 years later, and this is his handwriting in 1950. 
you can see it's coarser, you can see it's, it's more slanted. If you compare them side by side, um, it's the same person. The, the signature is really the same. Um, but the overall impression you can see has a very much a different thing. And this is a period, and this is, this is a, when, during around the time, 1950s around the time where he started um, being investigated. He was admitted to the, to the institution and diagnosed in 1952. So he definitely was symptomatic about this time. In 1940, he was just considered to be eccentric. So talk about it. he was eventually diagnosed in 1952 by Dr. Perkins. Now, what interesting is, is that he was, he was described, let's see, he was in the hospital being examined, and he writes, Woody Guffey writes, face seems to twist out of shape, can't control it. Arms dangle all around, can't control them. Wrists feel weak and my hands waves around in odd ways. I can't stop. All these docs keep asking me about my, how my, my mother died of Huntington's chorea. They never tell me if it's pass honorable or not. So I never know. I believe every doctor ought to speak plainer to us patients so us patients can begin to try out to guess partly what's wrong with us. If it's not alcohol with what has me, I wonder what it's going to be. He was diagnosed uh, in this month, but he, he, was in, he wasn't informed for about two and a half weeks. They said they got together, they wrote in his chart, they decided what he had, they didn't inform his patients. I think that there's a real difference. I think we have kind of a stark extremes of two patients being informed about their, their condition. Here's Woodrow Guthrie who's wondering what he's got. He knows his mom had something bad, this Huntington's thing. He's talked about it, he's feared it. He knows something's wrong with him and he feels like they won't tell him what's going on. In fact, they didn't tell him for a couple weeks. And here's the opposite, Catherine Mosier, she gets the genetic test at age 24. She knows 15 years before she could ever even have any symptoms. So which is better? Which is the better way to be? I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, certainly, you know, patient autonomy tells us, tells us that we should, we, should let, we should inform our patients of their condition. And I think as Woody was writing, I think there's some suggestions they should. There's a novel by Ian McEwen called Saturday. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but uh, his, his book, uh, Atoma, is fantastic. Um, and this one uh, I write is, is a book about a neurosurgeon um, who gets a, uh, involved with a, with a thug in London. And when he first meets him, he starts describing him. His gait is distinctive, with little jazzy twist and a dip of his trunk, as though he's punting along a gentle stretch of river. Finally, he, uh, he confronts the guy. You know, this isn't the moment to be asking for a family history. If a parent has it, it's a 50-50 chance you're going down too. Chromosome 4. This misfortune lies within a single gene, an excessive repeat of a single sequence, C-A-G. Here's biological determination in its purest form. More than 40 repeats of that little codon and you're doomed. Your future is fixed and easily foretold. The longer the repeat, the earlier and more severe the onset. Between 10 and 20 years to complete the course, from the first small alterations of character, tremors in the hands and face, emotional disturbance, including most notably, sudden, uncontrollable alterations of mood, to the helpless, jerky, dance-like movements, intellectual dilapidation, memory failure, agnosia, apraxia, dementia, total loss of muscular control, rigidity sometimes, nightmarish hallucinations, and a meaningless end. This is how the brilliant machinery of being is undone by the tiniest of, fa of faulty cogs, the insidious whisper of ruin, a single bad idea lodged in every cell on chromosome four.
I don't think there's any better way of putting it. Any questions about those guys? Now you guys are all experts in disease you will never diagnose. 